We are going to be turning to Acts chapter 28. So if you want to take out a Bible from the seat pocket in front of you, uh, or if you're a child of technology, feel free to type in Acts chapter 28 into your favorite uh, browser on your Satan song or your idle phone. Uh, I'll assume you're listening to me and not looking at Facebook. Uh, Acts chapter 28, we are going to be concluding a journey that we started some nearly nine months ago through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so, congratulations, you've hung in there. We made it all the way through 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And we are uh, now headed down the home stretch where, Lord willing, we're going to finish this journey today. Now, if you've joined us over the last several weeks, we've noticed a common theme, really from chapter 21 up to chapter 28. And the theme was one of bondage. The Apostle Paul was taken into custody there in chapter 21 while he was in Jerusalem. And from that point on, we're now years into this journey, he has continued in this place of bondage. And in fact, in chapter 27, what we looked at last time, three weeks ago now, after our little Easter break, was that uh, Paul and his uh, companions were headed towards Rome via a ship across the Mediterranean Sea. And what they encountered was a tremendous uh, Euroclidon, is what your scripture probably says, but that's simply a winter typhoon. Now, Paul had warned them that this wasn't a great idea to travel this time of year because of the winter season, and yet they encountered this tremendous storm. And so as we concluded back then, I shared with you that the Lord really allows storms in our lives for a few different reasons. And so if you've experienced a storm or you're in the middle of a storm, the truth about this Christian walk, and really for anybody, even if they don't believe in Jesus, is we're either uh, going into a storm we're in the middle of a storm or we're coming out of a storm. And so how's that for your encouragement today? <laughs> but this is, this is the reality for uh, storms in our life. But the Lord uses them for these different reasons. The first of which is a storm of correction. And we looked at the life of Jonah where he was correcting a mistake in Jonah's life to get him back on track. The second is a storm of perfection or maturation, you might want to call it. And we see this happen in the lives of the apostles. God knowing that they're going to have this tremendous uh, uh, persecution put upon them. And so he's trying to show them that he is God even over the storm. And he matures them in that experience. Thirdly, we've got storms of protection. And we see this in the case of Jonah where God sends a storm, but he also sends a way to navigate through the storm for Jonah so that he wouldn't be uh, condemned and judged with the rest of humanity. And then lastly, a storm of direction. And we see this now over these last couple chapters in Acts is Paul is being directed by the Lord to this small island out in the Mediterranean. And the island we're going to look at today as we start of Malta is not a place that Paul would have ever had on his radar. Like, man, I cannot wait to get to Malta. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's literally a spot no one has ever even heard of. It would be like someone saying, you know where we need to minister? Jewett. I mean, we have got to plant a church in Jewett because literally tens of people will show up if we end up in, you know, that's the kind of thing that Paul didn't have this on his radar. And yet the reality is uh, the Lord had it on his radar. He loved every single one of the people on this island of Malta. And so he sends this storm, not because of anything Paul has done wrong, but because the Lord so loved this group of people, he puts him there in Malta. Now, what we notice also about storms, whereas God is trying to teach us and train us through storms, uh, Satan very much wants to destroy us. 
So Satan is the one that is really the one perpetrating these storms in our life. He wants to destroy. And yet what the Lord is trying to do in our lives, James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So what the Lord is trying to do through these trials, through these storms, is actually produce patience to grow us up a little bit. And the interesting thing about a storm is it's really like a mirror for us. It gives us an opportunity to see how we're doing. It gives us a chance to look in the reflection and say, okay, how am I reacting in this storm? And that's important to note because God is not allowing storms in our life to see how we're going to do for his own sake. He already knows the end of the story. It's not a surprise to God. At no point in time does he allow a storm in our life and go, man, I wonder how Billy Bob is going to do in this. I am so shocked right now that he did not handle this any better. Oh, myself. It's going to take a few of you a minute to get that one. But when you do, it's going to be funny. You may be home. But God is not in a position where he is shocked or surprised by how we react. You know who's shocked? you, me. I'm always surprised. I always thought that I was going to handle this situation way better than what I actually do. And so what a storm does is it gives me an opportunity to see how will I actually handle this situation. Now, all that said, we are going to pick up in Acts chapter 28, verse 1. And verse 1 reads, now when they had escaped, they uh, found out that the island was called Malta. They didn't even know where they had been shipwrecked to. And the natives show, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. And so now Paul and all of these that were shipwrecked, they wind up on this island of Malta. And as they're there, the natives, or if you've got the old King James Version, it might say the barbarians. The Greeks would call people uh, like this barbarians because their native language to them sounded like bar, 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 bar. So they call people barbarians. They were so primitive. And yet here's these barbarians that the Greek people thought they were too good for that are now coming alongside, having sympathy and taking care of them. And at the beginning of verse 3, we see, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and he laid them on the fire, and I'll stop right there because here's the apostle Paul. He has just uh, preached to them. He has prophesied to them about surviving this tremendous storm, and, and yet he does not stop on the island of Malta and give them the big I told you so speech. But instead, he just goes about serving. I love Paul's heart. He wants to go and serve and to help. And so he goes about collecting and picking up sticks, just trying to help out and do his part, loving on people through service. When, at the end of verse 3, uh, we read, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So now here's Paul picking up sticks, and a viper comes out of the woodpile and grabs a hold of his hand, and he is snake-bitten. Now, I don't know how you all feel about snakes, but I have this feeling like there's actually uh, only uh, one kind of good snake, and that is a dead snake. That's how much I love snakes. And yet, here's the way if we spiritualize this, what you'll find is that whenever you've navigated a storm and you're feeling pretty good about it, um, it doesn't mean Satan is going to give up. He's going to continue to try to press on you. And what he'll do, instead of the big storm that you can see coming off in the horizon, he'll oftentimes allow and send what I call a little sneaky snake. 
old sneaky snake. Now, as a kid, uh, in my er early teens, I got the opportunity to work in the oil field for my family. And uh, what my uncles loved to do was to give me any awful job that they didn't want to do. And so uh, painting tank batteries or weed whacking around the tank batteries all over places nobody's ever been to. No humans have ever seen these places. But you know what are there? Snakes. I mean, sneaky snakes. Anytime you're weed whacking around tank batteries in the middle of nowhere, I, I would always be terrified of whatever snake was going to pop out to get me and my uh, handy-dandy weed whacker. And so as this would happen, invariably, you'd have sneaky snake just pop out out of nowhere. And I made a sound that sounded like a little girl. I'm guessing, I don't know, nobody was around to hear it. But it's just terrifying. And, and here's the thing. Uh, snakes always come up when we do not expect them. Now, note with me, here's Paul. He's actually serving. He's helping. He's doing a right and good thing. He's not out at the strip club. He's not out at the bar doing something he shouldn't have been or someplace that he shouldn't have been. He's working hard, just trying to help people out. And yet here is a snake coming around. And so the key is not in the snake bite. We oftentimes think the problem is, well, I got bit by a snake. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you handle it? Now, in verse 4, Paul's now got this snake hanging off his hand. In verse 4, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. These guys looked at him and they said, I don't know what kind of awful dude this is, but he just survived a shipwreck, and now this viper is going to kill him. He must have some kind of sin in his life. And boy, how often do we judge like that? When you look at someone and in their life and you see that they're snake bit and they continue to have what we call bad luck over and over again, if we're really being truthful, how often do we go, boy, I bet they got some kind of sin issue going on. They must have something in there that they don't want to talk about. There's a reason uh, they're snake bit. And yet, in verse 5, but he, Paul, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Here's Paul. How does he handle the snake bite that he didn't see coming, he just shakes that bad boy off. And no doubt it caused pain. I mean, you can imagine being bit by a viper. This couldn't have felt great. And yet what Paul knew, what he has continued to teach us through Scripture, is that any kind of pain or physical suffering is at the most temporary. There's nothing that Satan was going to throw at him that was going to affect his eternity with Christ Jesus. And so he simply just shakes the snake off into the fire. Now, verse 6, however, they were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall down dead. So these guys are watching like a reality TV show. This guy's going to swell up and just keel over. Let's keep an eye on him. But after, he had look, after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, this is how fickle we are as people. At first, they judged Paul like he must be some kind of awful murderer. This guy's one really bad dude. He just got snake bit after surviving a shipwreck. And now that he's survived it, the snake bite, they go, well, he must be a god. He's just perfect. Wow, way to go, Paul. So this reminds me that we need to not try to seek the approval of man. Solomon says in Proverbs 29, verse 25, that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. 
And how often do we get caught in that trap? We're trying to seek out man's approval. If I just did this, they're going to like me. They'll approve of me. They'll appreciate me. And yet over and over again, it's a trap. The one we should seek to approve is God. He's the only one that we should seek his ultimate and complete approval in our life. And so uh, Paul realizes there's no getting these guys to approve. Now in verse 7, in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island. Whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three years. And so the, the number one guy on the island decides to have all these guys into his home. Can you imagine, by the way, ladies, if your husband called you and said, Hey, uh, I'm getting ready to invite some people over for dinner. Oh, really? Great. How many folks? Uh, just 276. 200, and oh, by the way, honey, the 276 are uh, murderers, thieves, Roman soldiers. Uh, you know, extortionists, it's going to be great. It'll be a fantastic dinner party. Can you set the table? I mean, this is what's happened here in the story that we're dealing with. Now, verse 8, and it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and laid hands on him and healed him. And so now we have Publius, this guy that's been so gracious to invite them all in. His father has gotten sick with a fever. And this is most likely the Maltese fever is what it would have been called, and, and it was passed through goat's milk that exists there in Malta. And it would last anywhere from three months to two years. And so a very serious disease is what Publius' father would have come down with. And yet here, as he's gone out on a limb to invite all these people into his home, probably taking a little bit of flack for it, but uh, do you see what's happened? He has been blessed. So very blessed. And I think you'll find this uh, to be true, that when you step out a little bit and you invite someone into your world and you have them over or you go out of your way for someone else with the intention to bless them, what you're going to find more often than not is you actually end up being the one that gets blessed. You end up being the one that comes away feeling like something really wonderful happened to you. And, and the reality is, and this plays out throughout scripture, is that you cannot outgive God. If you think you can, you've got another thing coming. God has made a promise to us that he will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you cannot contain. You can't outgive him. You can't outdo him. And so here we see that Publius is now the one that gets blessed. His own father has the chance to live and has this fever healed from him. Now verse 9, so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Now word's gotten out from the Apostle Paul. And people have shown up from all over the island of Malta, and they want to be healed as well. And so he's continued to lay hands upon the sick and the dying and those that were diseased. And he's seen a tremendous healing ministry that's happened at the hands of the Apostle Paul. But then as I was thinking about that this week, and you read through 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is where Paul is speaking of his relationship with the Lord and his own disease and his own sickness that Paul calls his thorn in the flesh. And yet what the Lord tells him after three times that he asks for himself to be healed was, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. And I share that with you because I think lots of times when we look at our own struggles and our own trials and the problems that we face, that we can get it in our head that that somehow disqualifies me from being able to speak into the life of someone else. 
or to come in to help someone else. You just take simple marriage advice and counseling. If I've struggled in a marriage or in my marriage, well, for one, if you haven't struggled in a marriage, it's probably because you haven't been married. Um, But if I've struggled, that somehow that makes me disqualified to speak into someone else's life. And I would tell you that makes you actually a subject matter expert. That the real issue is we're unwilling to be vulnerable. That some of the best counseling I've ever done is, is to say, you know what? Here's an area of my life that I've completely jacked up. Now let me tell you about the consequences of that. And, and let me give you a little advice on how to avoid that. And so here's Paul. And what he has is a unique ability to have empathy for these people because he's been where they're at. He is suffering himself, and he's now able to see the sick and the hurt. And He doesn't get tired of them and say, hey, go away. I don't have time for you. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be in continual physical pain. And so he's able to lay hands upon them uh, like a sort of work-study program. I'm working this thing out as he goes. Now, in verse 10, And they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And so they sail on now an Alexandrian ship as they're making their way towards Rome. And the twin brothers that are mentioned there, if you know anything about Greek mythology, this is actually a Castor and Pollux. These would be the two sons of Zeus, and they were believed to have been uh, helpful for navigation through the seas. And so they have these, uh, th- these figures on the front of the ship. And the reason I bring that up is, well, because Luke wrote about it. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Luke was intentionally writing about their culture. I think it's important for us to note because we can have, especially as we, we go further in this walk with Jesus, this tendency to want to withdraw And we want to just get away from culture. We want to get completely as far away as we can. But the reality is we have to at least to some degree be engaged in culture in order to be able to reach the lost. And so here he's making a very real cultural uh, connection for them to be able to understand. We get your culture. We don't believe in it. I'm not going to go give a sacrifice to Castor Pollux, but I understand where you're at in your journey. And so it's important for us to note where we're at as a culture and as a society. Now, continuing verse 12, and landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. And from there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to uh, Petoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and, and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, note with me, as we went to all these different places, what Paul ran into were brethren. The Lord was putting people in Paul's path to give him encouragement on his way to Rome. And he is far, far away from his home at this point in time. He's thousands of miles away, farther than he probably ever thought he was going to get to travel. And yet, each spot he went, there were people to encourage him along the journey. Now, verse 16. Now, when we had come to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
And so here's Paul. He's now at Rome. Finally, he's made this journey, the completion, all the way back from Paul desiring to go to Rome to then the Lord in chapter 23 saying, Paul, you're going to go testify of me in Rome. He's finally made it. But he's made it completely in chains. He is under 24-hour Roman uh, surveillance. And these wouldn't have been just ordinary soldiers. These guys would have been the most elite special services that Caesar himself had. And they would have literally been chained to Paul 24 hours a day, most likely taking six-hour shifts to stay chained to Paul all the time. And yet here's what Paul is doing, evangelizing. What he was good at, right? He was just continuing to speak to people that were around him about Jesus. And I'm going to take you one place to show you that. Philippians chapter 4. This is a letter that Paul wrote while he was in chains here in Rome. And in chapter 4, verse 22 of Philippians, he says, And all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. He's referring to saints within Caesar's household. These men that Paul was chained to had become Christians. As he was evangelizing to them, ministering to them, and I bring that up to say, who are you chained to? Who has God got you intentionally in the life of chained to that you probably more than likely want to say, Lord, anybody but this person, unchain me from this job, this boss, this relationship. I don't want to be tied up with this any longer. And yet what the Lord is trying to say is, this is who I need you to minister to. And so here's Paul. In this spot of incarceration, he has actually found incredible inspiration. He is completely locked down, and yet he is also completely inspired. And what do I mean by that? Well, one of the most famous spots in all of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, this is the place where Paul writes about putting on the whole armor of God. You've probably got this up in your house somewhere. In what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which, which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Right? We get excited about the armor of God. But do you realize what Paul was looking at while he was writing that particular set of verses in Ephesians? A fully armed Roman guard. He was literally in chains being inspired looking at this guy who is his full-time security personnel to keep him from running off. And he was going, look, man, you've you've got truth around your waist. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet, they're preparing for the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and all the sword of the spirit and the helmet of salvation. You understand the inspiration that Paul had while everyone else looks and goes, that's incarceration. It wasn't the case for the apostle Paul. Now continuing in verse 17, and it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called you. 
to see you, to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound in this chain. And so Paul, wanting to clear his name with his brethren, the Jews that were there in Rome, he calls them all together. He wants to say, look, I've been accused by our Jewish people, and yet I'm completely innocent. I want to just make this clear to you. I'm here because of the hope of Israel. That's the reason that I am here before you. And so Paul is defending his position where he's at with his fellow Jews, who they respond in verse 21. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. They basically said, Paul, we have absolutely no idea who you are. <laughs> you, you shared all this with it. Who in the world are you? Like, so I read that, and it causes me to chuckle because Paul was so convinced that everybody was talking about him, that everybody was concerned about him, that folks were, were all up in arms about him. And yet the reality was they didn't have a, a clue who in the world Paul was. And I think about that and how many times I get so upset or so bothered or so worried? What if they think this? And what if these people think that? Or I bet they're probably presuming this about me. And the reality is they probably didn't think one single thing about me. You know what they were worried about? Their deal. I'm worried about my deal. It's the biggest deal I got going on. You're worried about yours because it's the biggest deal you've got going on. And so we get ourselves all spun up and we lose focus of where the focus should be. Now, Paul quickly gets reset on where the focus should be, and in verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect, speaking of Christianity, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came uh, to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning until evening. So what happens here is they say, Paul, we have no idea who you are, but we've heard about these Christians. We've heard about this Jesus. Would you share with us about him? Where the focus should have always been and been maintained was on Christ Jesus. And so be encouraged when you're in these situations. The focus need not be on us, but on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so Paul quickly resets, and then he goes for it. He sees the opening to give them the full gospel, and he goes all the way through the Old Testament. I mean, he takes this much of your Bible, and from morning until night. You guys think I talk too much? You got nothing on the Apostle Paul. So this guy went from morning until night, covering from Genesis all the way to Malachi uh, to preach to them through the law and the prophets about Jesus. Now, what Jesus said himself about Scripture and where the focus should be in John chapter 5, when he was being questioned by the Pharisees, he says this, You, speaking to these Pharisees, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. That you go through and through and through your Old Testament scriptures, but don't you understand every single one testifies of me. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate, trying to get the focus back on him. And one of my favorite Bible teachers, a guy at Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, named Skip Heitzig, uh, he 
does this amazing class, the Bible from 30,000 feet, where he covers the entire Bible in a year. It's, it's a really phenomenal thing to, to check out. I encourage you to watch the YouTube videos are all out there. But what he says at the very beginning of that entire study is that the whole of the Bible can be summed up as the story of one man and two events. That man from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. Jehovah is salvation and his salvation message. And the two events are his first coming and his second coming. That's the whole of the book. And so we get all excited about other little bits and doctrines, but the reality is it is all about him from beginning to end. And Paul is reminded of that here, and he goes for it as he teaches these guys through their own law and their prophets. Now, verse 24, And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. And so what we see is even for the Apostle Paul, and by the way, I want to encourage you, if you've ever evangelized, do you understand? We're talking about the Apostle stinking Paul here. I mean, Paul preached, evangelized to them, and some believed and some did not. We are so easily discouraged when we try to speak about Jesus to someone and they don't immediately believe. Yet here's Paul. He's given it to them both barrels, morning till night, and yet some believed and some did not. The question for us is, for us, it's do we believe? Now, we say we believe, we get together on Sundays and we talk about our belief. We, we read through scriptures and we, we would communicate our belief. But my question to you is, do we actually believe what scripture says? When the going gets tough, that he will, in fact, uh, provide, for example. Well, that's easy to say. I got bills to pay. I got things going on in my life. Well, here's the thing. Um, to believe in what scripture says, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 19 says this, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so his promise to us, if we believe it, is he will provide all our needs. Now, we may have a discrepancy on what qualifies as need and what is a want, and yet his promise is he is going to take care of my needs. David said he'd never seen a righteous man begging for bread. And so the promise here of the Lord, if we believe it, is that he will provide. Well, that sounds good, but what about my relationships? What about people who have hurt me intentionally, gone after me, uh, tortured me, bothered me, uh, just come at me? What about those things? I'm struggling to believe that God could possibly work any kind of good in that relationship. What I would encourage you to do is uh, look back to Joseph. Genesis chapter 50. Nobody was probably more mistreated by his family than Joseph. I mean, they, they claimed he was dead. They sold him to Midian slave traders. He was in prison for years. Sounds like things went pretty poorly for Joseph. And yet at the end of his life, or as his family finally makes their way in the middle of a famine to Egypt, and his father's just passed off the scene, his brothers now, they're convinced he's going to try to kill us. Now Jacob's dead. He's coming after us. Here's what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Do you believe in the middle of that relationship that even as it hurts and as the pain comes, that God is going to see something good come out of that mess? 
that what Romans 8.28 says is that he works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what I've told you several times here is that if it ain't good, he ain't done. He's still, he's still working in that situation. The question is, do we actually believe it? Finally, the one that I've heard is, what about my children? What about my family? It's a struggle in my relationships with my kids. I've got them that have gone astray. They're struggling. What do I do in this relationship? I'm struggling to believe that God is going to be good in this spot. We've read Proverbs 22, that if we raise them up in the way of the Lord, they shall not depart, and yet they've departed. So what does that mean? I would, again, send you to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete a good work. That's a promise that you can take to the bank every single time. The question we have, the thing we have to wrestle with is, do we believe it? We have plenty of of head knowledge. We know a lot about Scripture, but do we actually put it into action? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. There's a university behind me. There's a lot of knowledge back there. You know what they lack? Wisdom oftentimes. It's application of the knowledge. How do we apply this and put this into our lives? And what Jesus says in John chapter 13, speaking of the promises throughout Scripture, he says in John 13 verse 17, if you know these things, if you have knowledge of these things, blessed are you if you do them. (laughs) The doing is always the problem. The believing is is the problem. If you know these things, you need to apply these things. That's what wisdom looks like. And so it's, it's trusting in the one who's made the promise. Now, Paul speaks to these, and some believe, and yet some do not believe. And he goes on in verse 25 to say, so when they did not depart, or excuse me, when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. And the first thing I notice, Paul says, I've got one more word for you. And then he proceeds to give them three more verses. Which, by the way, anytime a pastor ever says, I've got just one more thing to say, that's easily 10 minutes. Every time. Last point, it's like 10 minutes. Same way with Paul. We get it honest, right? Paul says, I've got one more word. Here's 40 words. So he gives them this uh, prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 6, which is interesting because it's the same prophecy that Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 13. But as we read this, it sounds harsh, like the Lord is going to allow them to hear things but not understand, allow their hearts to not actually receive it. This seems like God is being a little bit cruel as we read through this. So the question is why? Well, the issue is really that they did not want to believe. It wasn't that they could not. It was that they flatly refused. They had hardened their hearts to hearing the word of the Lord. And so because they had hardened their hearts, because it was a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord, they had hardened themselves. God was simply giving them over to what they'd already asked for. 
They'd asked to not believe, and he just said, okay, fine, I'll confirm it. And when you think of the story in Exodus of Pharaoh as Moses was time and time again going in to say, let my people go, let them out of Egypt. This is coming from God to Pharaoh. What did he over and over again do? Hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart until eventually what you'll find if you read through that narrative is that it says God hardened his heart. God actually took what Pharaoh desired and set it into place, cast it like it was in concrete. You want to harden your heart at some point in time, God will give you over to what you've asked for. And for Pharaoh, what actually swallowed him up in the Red Sea wasn't just his journey through the middle of the water. It was unbelief. He did not believe what God said he was going to do. And so out of unbelief, he got swallowed up. And the reality is, in our relationship with the Lord, is that he gives us this choice because of love. He gives us the opportunity to believe or not because he loves us. That's why we have free will. One of the most wonderful things about this relationship with God is that he gives us free will. And one of the most frustrating things about this relationship with God is that he gives us free will. I wish sometimes he'd just tell me what to do, and that's all I had to do. But he wants us to love him, not for us to be robots. And so he gives us an opportunity. It, love demands a choice. What are you going to choose? And for these men, they had hardened their hearts. They'd sealed off their ears, and God said, that's fine. I'm going to give you over to what you ask for. Now, headed down the home stretch. You know what that means now. Ten more minutes. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Since you would not receive this message, I'm going to take it someplace else. That's what Paul's saying. You wouldn't listen. I'm not going to continually pound my head against the wall trying to get you to absorb a message that you will not listen to. And when we think about Jesus and his teachings in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he tells uh, the, the believers gathered there that not to throw their pearls to the pigs, right? Why would he say that? Well, the truth is we are oftentimes prone to throw out these pearls, these little nuggets of wisdom. This is really salvation to people that just gobble it up. They don't really want to change. They don't really want to hear it. Now, I say that, and I'm also going to caution you, be very uh, slow to call somebody a pig. I mean, because our, our fickle nature is, as soon as somebody doesn't listen, that's just because they're a pig, stinking pigs. Knew they weren't going to listen, right? But, but I would tell you, God is very long-suffering. Many of you have experienced God's patience with us time and time again, how long-suffering he actually is with each of us. So we should be long-suffering as we try to be more Christ-like. And yet, there are times in relationships where we have just shared so much and poured in so much to people that do not want to hear. And I would encourage you that those are times where we have to take that energy and apply it someplace else. Maybe our voice isn't the voice that reaches them. Maybe we're not the ones to speak that into their life. <clears throat> and so Paul is saying, look, you're not going to receive the message. The message is going to go elsewhere. And in verse 29, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great dispute among themselves. And then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so we see the conclusion of the acts of the Holy Spirit and the end 
of what we read about the Apostle Paul in this particular book. And it seems like a bit of a cliffhanger. Now, uh, spoiler alert, here's what happens at the end of Paul's life. He's actually going to be exonerated. He's going to be let go by Caesar Nero here shortly. And he's going to continue to go on the missionary trail, preaching and teaching, only for him to eventually be uh, rearrested and will appear for a second time in front of Caesar Nero where the outcome will be different. He will uh, be condemned and be beheaded by Caesar Nero somewhere in the 67 to 68 AD range. In fact, 2 Timothy is the last known writing that we have in our scripture from the Apostle Paul. And if you look at that, it's very clear that he knows the end is about near, that it's about time. His race is almost finished, is what Paul says. And so what we see is Paul's life ends in captivity, and yet I underline something at the end of uh, my Bible, at the end of this particular book that I would encourage you to highlight, and it is no one forbidding him. That even as Paul was in the middle of uh, chains, and, and the word that I came up with was that he was unhindered. That it looked to everybody on the outside like he was completely locked down, uh, shut down. There was no way he could be of any use in the ministry. That in the middle of being in chains, he was completely unhindered. And what we find is he writes four uh, letters that are known as the prison epistles during this time. And in the letter to the Ephesians, he writes about, while he's in bondage, the glory of Christ. And then to the letter of the Colossians, he writes about the preeminence or the excellence of Christ. To Philemon, he writes about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And then finally, and one of my favorite of all the New Testament Philippians, he writes about the joy that we can have in Christ Jesus while he's in chains, while he is in prison. How is that even possible? Because from everything that we see from the outside world, it looks like uh, he should be depressed and downtrodden because uh, he has absolutely no liberty whatsoever. And yet I would challenge you that what the world calls uh, liberty is actually bondage. When I think about my life through my 20s and even into my early 30s, all the liberties that I felt free to exercise, uh, it was going to be up to me what I decided to do what I decided to watch. I have liberty in that. I have liberty in how I speak and what I say and how I conduct my business and what I drink and who I hang out with. I have liberty in these things. And yet what I found is over the course of time, it was actually bondage. It was chains. That the shame and the guilt and the disappointment and, and the continual effects of this is never going to be good enough. It doesn't feel good enough. It felt like bondage. So all the liberty the world had to offer was actually captivity. And then we turn and we look at Paul, who is in captivity. He is in bondage. But what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, if you flip to the right just a little bit, he says, and I, the apostle Paul, bond servant of Jesus Christ. Bond servant. Now, a free will bond servant was someone who had already worked off all their debt, who, who their debts had been paid. We'll put it that way. And yet, as their debts were paid and they had the ability to go free, they make a decision that they love their master so much, their Lord so much, that they want to willfully, intentionally stay under their protection in their uh, debt in their servitude, if you want to call it that. 
And so what they would do in that day is, is they would become free will bond servants. And the master's promise would be to continually take care of them and their family all the days of their life. This is the terminology Paul uses about himself. What he knows is as a bond servant of Jesus Christ, he's going to take care of me every step of the way. He's going to see me through the storms and the snake bites and the, all the journeys that I have to go on. He's going to put me in a place where I need to minister to. And even if it looks like I'm in chains, I'm going to be free because I don't have to worry about a thing. My master is going to take care of me. And so I would ask you, who are you indebted to? If it's this world, it's a tough master. It is not going to be satisfied until we are dead and in the ground. But if it is Christ Jesus, if you are willing to allow yourself to become a free will bondservant to Jesus, it looks like freedom. And if you want to know what freedom looks like, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This is Paul writing one last time in Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Hmm. Do you have that kind of freedom? Do you have freedom like that, to be able to meditate the way Paul is able to meditate? So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the completion of a long journey through the acts of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for learnings. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul, who we, even to this very day, while to the world it might look like he lost his life, what we know is his writings have lived on and countless of millions upon millions have come to know you because of the work that you allowed to happen in this man's life. And so we praise you for it, Lord. We thank you that what the world says is freedom that we can see clearly is actually bondage. And what the world sees as bondage is really just love, Lord. That what you have planned for us, that what obedience to you looks like is actually complete and total freedom. It looks like getting to not do the things that so easily trip us up and ensnare us. Lord, we thank you for freedom. We thank you that we can meditate on these things day and night. Would you please help us as we continue to stay focused solely upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? time of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe in this broken generation and all his dark you help us see there is only one salvation 
We believe, we believe, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life, we believe in the crucifixion, we believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection And He's coming back again We believe So let our faith be more than anthems Greater than the songs we sing weakness and temptations we believe we believe we believe in God the Father we believe in Jesus Christ we believe in the Holy Spirit and He's given us new life we believe in the crucifixion we believe in the resurrection when he's coming back again. Let the lost be found and the dead be raised in the here and now. Let him reign, let the church live now. God will save. We believe, we believe in the gates of hell will not prevail for the power of God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And He's coming back. God's people said, amen. All right. Thank you guys so much. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, don't forget to go and get your children. We don't need more children at my house. We have a plenty. We have a plethora. So uh, please uh, get your kiddos. Uh, I'm going to be hanging around if you need prayer for anything whatsoever. I want to encourage you guys as they sang, you know, we have this wonderful opportunity to proclaim belief, to show what belief looks like lived out throughout the week. And so be encouraged to go uh, do that as we go on our way. God bless you guys. Have a great week.